Stanford University. And uh, welcome to you all, and uh, welcome to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jack Nicholas. Uh, several years ago, as I was doing research for a book I was writing, uh, I kept running across uh, these reports that were written from Iranian embassy in Tehran and bore his name. And one day in San Francisco, we were both at a party, and we were talking about Iran, and uh, um, he said, and he said, I served in Iran. And I said, well, what's your name? And he told me his name, and I told him that I've been reading his writing for several months. Uh, and then when we began this program, this lecture series, I realized that we really have a, a, a very important uh, local jewel, someone who has the kind of experience that is very rare to find in American diplomatic circles these days, that is experience on Iran. Uh, I think it goes, uh, it, it's not hyperbole to say that amongst the, those who have served Iran, a few have had as close and as vast a network of friends amongst the Iranian political elite, Iranian cultural elite, as Jack Nicholas has. He's a Stanford graduate. He has served in Iran in two very, very crucial moments. Uh, first, 57-59, which is the beginning of important changes in Iran, and then again in mid-70s, when things are beginning to come to boil. The things that began basically in 57-59 come to the boil. Uh, he has agreed to uh, make brief uh, introductory remarks, and then he has uh, gracefully accepted to answer our questions about U.S. diplomacy in Iran in the years before the revolution. So, thank you for coming. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Oh, good evening, everybody. Uh, I did serve in Iran um, on several two uh, different assignments. And also, in addition, I was back in Washington where I was responsible for Iranian affairs for a uh, period of time. So my uh, credentials are or have been established in that respect. Now, when Dr. Milani asked me to uh, speak about my experience in pre-revolutionary Iran, I said that I doubted I had much to add to what is already known. A number of thoughtful books on the subject have been published, and even a casual internet search turns up a wealth of documents, articles, and links to material covering that era. Depending on the writer's background and particular bias, it's possible to find quite contradictory accounts of the actions and motives of those directly involved. I doubt that I can resolve many of these differences. Nevertheless, I will try to give you some sense of my experience at that time. At the outset, I would like to set the stage, so to speak, by stating the obvious. Foreign policy is set by the President. The Secretary of State has primary responsibility for executing this policy. It is not just left to the State Department and diplomats abroad, however. Since the end of World War II, countless other players get into the act. 
Among these are members of Congress, our intelligence community, the U.S. military, and other government departments such as Treasury and Commerce. American business and American banking and business corporations and other non-governmental groups also play a role. The interplay of views and influence on these participants does not always make for clarity or a tidy ordering of priorities. In the case of Iran, there was a rather constant internal debate about the focus, scope, and content of our involvement. Still, Iran's geography and history of relations with the Soviet Union made the containment of Soviet influence and the spread of communism an overriding U.S.-Iranian policy objective at that time. Our activities were in large measure built around this common goal. First impressions often seem most lasting, and the standard against which all that follows is measured. Mine came on a dark night in 1957 as our plane descended for a bumpy landing and taxied to Tehran's rather shabby, run-down terminal. That's what it was in those days. Few city lights could be seen, and the impression of a third-world country was reinforced on the ground. The ride into town passed through dark and somewhat forbidding streets. Many buildings and homes were hidden behind mud-brick mud walls, open running water sewers, were common, and a camel trading market thrived not too far north of our embassy. Physical impressions notwithstanding, excuse me, transformation was in the air. Important social and economic changes had been introduced. These included the secularization of education and the judiciary, the unveiling of women, a literary program, and land reform. Iran had chosen the, mo the model of state-directed economic investment with some modifications to a market economy. The United States was a significant source of, policy, of grants, loans, and technical assistance in support of this policy. American workers, Americans were working side by side with Iranian officials in the plan organization to help craft and implement specific economic projects and programs. American companies were involved in the construction of transportation, water supply, and industrial infrastructure. Educational and cultural exchange programs were a part of our relationship, as was our work with the Iranian security forces in support of modernization and enhanced capabilities. Over time, the nature and quality of the relationship evolved. When I returned from my next assignment in 1974, evidence of progress was to be seen on all sides. Iran no longer sought grants under the, from the United States. Its economic investments were funded largely through oil revenue. A modernizing middle class of managers, technocrats, and business executives had grown substantially. Point four type assistance was no longer needed. This is not to say that all was perfect. Some programs were mismanaged. Others faltered because of the lack of trained manpower. 
poor follow-through and misplaced priorities plagued others. Migration from the countryside swelled the ranks of the urban poor, where economic opportunities were few. There was little social support to replace what they had left behind. Increased public expenditures failed to meet expectations of promised benefits and contributed to an uneven economic performance. These conditions, coupled with tight political control, fueled sporadic outbreaks of protest among students in the bazaar. Within the constraints of the political and social environment, we regularly sought to examine these events and consider their effect on the stability and strength of the regime. Without getting into specific detail, I can tell you there was no lack of criticism heard in private about the Shah, the government, and other influential personalities, and the mullahs. We heard about the Shah's unhappiness with the activities of his family. There were jokes about his pretensions and complaints about such excesses as the 2,500th anniversary celebration. His style of rule and autocratic ways were also talked about. Stories of fraud, corruption throughout society was also topics of conversation. Venal imams were not excluded. Factoring into our analysis was awareness that our presence was not universally welcome, particularly in the traditional society circles or social circles. Nevertheless, during my time, uh, the embassy did not believe the situation as we saw it warranted a fundamental change in policy. Significant, consideration, significant in considering such a possibility was our perception that there was no cohesive or coordinated leadership poised to replace the existing regime. The main thrust of the fragmented opposition seemed to be that they should be in charge with no clear picture of a common agenda. What a majority of Iranians that a majority of Iranians might long for a return to the past did not strike us as even remotely probable. In a recurring irritant, excuse me, a recurring irritant in our relations arose from Iran's sensitivity to external criticism. It was a cause of my being called in periodically by the foreign minister or the minister of court to explain some particularly vexing article which appeared in our press. No amount of explanation about our system of free press or its independence from the government seemed to allay suspicions completely that the criticism had been officially inspired. In this respect, I might note a not uncommon Iranian article of faith that the country's destiny is in large measure shaped by a hidden hand. This was once seen as being British, but more recently American. An example of this hidden hand mystic involved me personally. At a time when speculation about the longevity of the Shah's regime became, began to gain currency, a close Persian friend of mine told me in all seriousness that there was a story he had heard that I had been in Qum meeting with the mullahs to map our, our next steps out after the Shah, excuse me, after the Shah left. Of course, I told him this was ridiculous, 
Later, however, in re I recall that uh, uh, during a recent trip in the Isfahan Qum area, I had met the prelate of a local Orthodox church who had asked for financial support. Nothing much came of it, but I thought it possible that someone had gotten a, ho uh, a hold of this tidbit of information and turned it into another example of the American hidden hand at work. I know that to this day there are some Iranians who believe that the U.S. plotted the Shah's overthrow. Even the Shah himself wrote in his memoirs that he thought the Americans wanted him to go. In his excellent book on eminent Persians, Dr. Milani noted that such grand theories of external influence have obscured the role of individual Iranians in determining the course of its history. He recounts the lives and accomplishments of 150 men and women who were especially consequential in the transformation of Iran during its pre-Homeini period. He concluded that in the end, it is Iranians themselves who have shaped this history, their history, and bear responsibility for its outcome. I certainly agree with that conclusion. Oil and its price and availability was a recurring subject of discussion and negotiation. On one occasion during the Arab oil embargo, pressure on oil prices increased dramatically. A high-level mission was dispatched from Washington to meet with the Shah and persuade him to hold the line. Appeals were made on geopolitical and strategic grounds, but it finally came down to hard economic reality. The Shah pointed out that cost of goods and services from the United States were growing at an even more alarming rate. Further, he said, he could not help notice that foreign governments got a lot of revenue through taxes on the sale of oil. If price was a problem, maybe consideration should be given to, given to reducing prices, he suggested. A footnote, excuse me, a footnote at the height of public com uh, controversy over the price of oil, our Secretary of the Treasury said publicly that the Shah was nuts on the subject. I was called in by the Minister of Court to explain. I tried to dance around this by saying that the Secretary used the term nuts in the sense of being enthusiastic. <laughs> the Minister, who was a good friend, was having none of it and smilingly told me that the Shah understood English as well as anyone. He suggested I report back to Washington that the secretary may be a good bond salesman, but he did not know much about oil business. I thought the minister was right about this, but kept my opinion to myself in my report. What were some of the other issues that engaged my time? They ranged from the importance of Iran's wish to acquire nuclear power, to insignificant questions of whether a visiting fireman's schedule conformed to his or her sense of importance. In the 70s, Iran was overrun with all sorts of visiting dignitaries, congressional delegates, heads of corporations, human rights advocates, salesmen, and con artists. All wanted a piece of the action and sought embassy support. The large American community also required attention. Pot smoking was a problem among students at the American school. The embassy was expected to take the lead in dealing with this issue. American contractors brought in American labor to work on a wide variety of projects, 
some of these people were not exactly the cream of American society, and their behavior was a source of friction and complaint from the local authorities. I had to call in their managers and demand they exercise discipline or risk expulsion. Security was also a problem. Several of our military officers had been assassinated by Iranian terrorists and an attempt had been made on a previous ambassador's life. Precautionary measures and practices had to be put in place and followed. In one case, the terrorists got the wrong man. This happened when one of our local staff members, who closely resembled one of our embassy officers, was riding in an embassy car. It was intercepted at a cross street and the employee was shot and killed. On investigation, it turned out he was actually a member of a radical opposition group who had been planted in the embassy to report on our personnel and activities. For me, Iran was a fascinating and fulfilling assignment. I was fortunate in becoming friends with a number of Iranians featured in Dr. Milani's book. I had nothing but an admiration for their dedication, hard work, and patriotism. In general, I found Iranians personally engaging and hospitable to a fault. In evaluating imparted information, however, one learned to take into account a Persian's tendency to dissemble and tell one what one wanted to hear. It was also an important it was also also important to recognize social and official standing and the manner in which persons related to each other. Exuberant flattery or taraf was the lubricant of social intercourse. The exercise of influence on a personal as well as official level was the expected and accepted coin of the realm. Iran was and is a complex mix of ancient culture values, tradition, and modernizing aspirations. To understand it fully is no simple matter. And, as I would argue, many Iranians have found the same. Thank you very much, and I would be delighted to try and answer any questions you have. Uh, you'll forgive me if my memory is not as sharp as it once was, but as you know, this all happened 30 and more years ago. Yes. What would be the biggest reason, in your opinion, that the United States didn't see the revolution coming in 1978-1977? In the early months of 1978, we did not see a revolution. We did see and detect, obviously, it was pretty plain to anybody that was there, that there was growing unrest and there were, at the beginning of 1978, uh, incidents in uh, Qum and uh, Abadan and uh, Mashhad and Tabriz, around the country in other words, that it resulted in violence, people being killed, and it set off a cycle of 40 days, which is a tradition in Iran, of 40 days of mourning and then Another demonstration was brought up, and again, people were killed, and then it went on and grew in scope and intensity. Uh, it was roughly in the, um, about September of 1978, and I'd left by then, that uh, our ambassador, Bill Sullivan, 
concluded that we better take another look at the situation. And he drafted uh, what in State Department is a rather famous document, which let out is, I believe it's time to think the unthinkable. And in that he described what we what we were witnessing and described the many, many conversations that he had been having with the Shah. The Shah himself was vacillating. He wasn't sure what to do, how to do it, how to handle it. He, re he fired, I fired is not quite the word, but uh, he chose another prime minister in the hopes that that new prime minister could bring about some modicum of change and, and stability. But as we know, it didn't happen. And in the end, he decided uh, it was best to leave. So to suggest that the United States didn't know anything about this or uh, was asleep at the switch, I think, is not in accordance with the actual record. Now, I might add that even having recognized that it was possible or maybe even desirable for the Shah to leave on his own, uh, left the question of, well, what do we do? Now, at that time, there was a great deal of discussion, particularly in the Congress, but elsewhere, about uh, how terrible this would be for American foreign policy and interests in the area. Um, one senior senator suggested we send warships to Abadan, and there are other suggestions along that line. Uh, obviously, these weren't accepted. Yes, sir. Um, in terms of expecting events, with respect to the hostage taking, um, there was another hostage taking earlier on, maybe a few days before after embassy that included some of Why was the team completely changed and a new team was brought in? Why wasn't that complete evacuation? Well, I think that the conclusion was that it was a, a serious but not unmanageable uh, event. And that uh, people who were still friendly toward the United States were still in positions of power and influence and that uh, should something like this occur in the future, it would be taken care of along these lines. Now that's speculation on my part. I was not there. Yes, sir. I'm glad you asked that question. To my knowledge, well, I didn't know about it and I didn't know anybody else that knew about it. The French knew about it but they didn't uh, confide in us. Now, we were uh, aware that the Shah was not well, uh, and we would ask each other, and there was other people that saw him, we would ask him, well, how does he look to you? And he, reports would come down, sometime, come back sometimes, well, he looks fine, he's in pretty good mood, and other times they'd say, well, he seems kind of depressed, and he looks rather pale and drawn. So it was, a, it was a mixed story. But that we knew that he had cancer, which of course he eventually died from, we didn't know. The 
French did, but we didn't. Yes, sir. Uh, there wasn't any particular conflict between British and Americans on, in the 70s. Uh, that goes back to a much earlier period and the nationalization of oil and the Mossadegh period and negotiating new contracts and all of that. And uh, I'm just not qualified to go into detail about all of that. but. Uh, there was eventually a settlement, as we know, and, and uh, Iran became the master of its resources, which in my view was right. And uh, as, I, as I described, we would argue about price of oil or the availability of oil. Now, Iran wasn't um, totally greedy about this. When the Arab oil embargo occurred, they were willing to quietly continue to supply Israel uh, with oil which probably didn't make our Arab friends very happy, but that was the case. Yes, sir. Uh, I think you mentioned that you served in 1957 also, right? 1957, yes. Um, if, memory, if, if I remember correctly, Sabak, the dreaded secret police, was created in 1956, and many people write that it was with the help of United States and Israel, including many techniques of torture, uh, what was the role of the U.S. Embassy during your time in, in that history? And what was the, the help that you guys provided to, to that? To the Te techniques of torture, I don't know, and I seriously doubt that we were instrumental in, in instructing Savak in those practices. Now, you might say, well, look what's happened since then, but I, I don't. Uh, it is true that... Uh, the United States did cooperate with the Iranian government in establishing a the um, Savak service. Uh, I might add that uh, you know one hears stories about Savak being omnipotent; that they're all over the place. They know everything. They know everything about everybody, and they were incredibly effective. We didn't find that was so. Some areas they were pretty good. Some areas they were really not very good at all. Um, but Savak uh, had agents in the United States as well as uh, elsewhere, and it became a little bit of an issue between the United States government and Iran as to whether they should be having spies there, uh, here. And uh, the Shah said, well, um, if you want to have your people here, I think we're entitled to have our people there. So it was sort of it became a moot question. Yes, sir. At the time that you were serving at the embassy in Iran, what did you and your colleagues know about Khomeini and his followers and also Badragan and his group? We didn't know very much about Khomeini. I mean, we did know about the history and the fact that he'd been expelled. Uh, we were uh, told about the cassettes that appeared in the bazaar that uh, his his followers and other people 
uh, listened to and that they were gaining a, a great deal of credibility. But again, uh, we did not uh, perceive a major threat from that source. I'm sorry, did I answer the question fully Bar or not? Oh, Barzagan, uh, yes, we... I personally knew less about Barzagan. I, some of our political officers had a much closer view of that uh, personality and what he stood for and that sort of thing. I didn't. Anybody else? Yes, sir. who has looked at uh, the Ford presidential papers and Ben Scrocroft's papers. And it shows in, uh, around the time of Simon saying that the Shah is nuts, he suggests that uh, the United States basically decides to circumvent the Shah and make a peace with Saudi Arabia to reduce the price of oil. And the price of oil then does take a dive in 77. Uh, this is the Doha Agreement. And that his argument is that there was a lot of tension between the U.S. and Iran in that period over this oil issue. Were you aware of these tensions, or are these exaggerated? Um, well, yeah, there were um, Bill Simon, the Treasury Secretary, and a number of other people were unhappy about the, the way, the direction things were going, and they felt that the Shah, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that the Shah and Iran, <coughs> sorry, um, that the Shah and Iran were the culprits in all of this. We saw it <coughs> and from a little different perspective, not that they weren't, that the Shah wasn't a very active participant and directed uh, my good friend Jamshid Muzagar to weigh heavily in on uh, the, in OPEC councils, but uh, from our perspective, the Saudis were the culprits, and um, certainly from what we heard, it went on within the OPEC discussions and so forth. Um, now, actually, we had somewhat of a conflict with our ambassador in Saudi Arabia over this question about who's who's the bad guy. We'll have to look at the record more carefully to come up with an answer. <laughs> yes? For one, about your personal opinion of whether there was a connection between the revolution in 1979 and the military coup in 1953, and what, what your sense of what um, Iranians' views on that were at the time that you were I'm sorry, was there a connection between what happened in 79 and... I'm sorry? Well, yeah, there was a connection in the sense that uh, uh, in certain circles in Iran, power centers, well, power centers is not the word, but um, there was a lot of unhappiness about the um, 
role that the United States played in the overthrow of uh, Mossadegh. Now again, uh, that role has been, in my view, uh, exaggerated. I knew I knew Kim Roosevelt uh, very well. I wasn't there at the time, but I knew him very well. And uh, he'd written a book about uh, the ins and outs of this. But I've also heard from Iranians. And uh, the fact that the Iranian military was not particularly pleased with Dr. Mossadegh's um, positions and policy. And uh, as my understanding that some were concerned that he was moving to take seize control or at least power over the military. And so there was dissatisfaction in that quarter uh, in terms of uh, Dr. Mossadegh's continuing on. It's a... Uh, um, you you can go on the you can go on the internet and if you dig deep enough you can come up with a lot of stuff on this uh, subject, both pro and con and in between. Uh, I I'm, I remember, for example, uh, my good friend Ardashir Zahdi, who was foreign minister, and directly involved in that whole event, uh, and he has written his own view of who the players were and why and what happened. You might like to look at that. No, for your information, Zahedi has donated his papers to Stanford University. He has an incredible collection of documents. Oh, I imagine he has. Yes, I, I worked with them. They are an incredible collection. Oh, you have them? I have, I, I've worked with them in Geneva, where he has them, but they're going to come to Stanford eventually. He's decided to donate them to us on mass. Really? Oh, well, that'd be fascinating to You know, one of the things I'd, I'd look forward to reading was uh, Alam's memoirs. I read it. I think they were heavily, heavily transcribed, I mean, uh, censored or something. I mean, there's not half of what happened was in his memoirs, not half. No, it was a lot. It was just left out. Just a lot that was left out. I'd like to make another remark about the condition of what happened in 1978-79 in that uh, you mentioned, well, the Shah was ill or did we know it? There was also another uh, fact that played, in my view, played an important role. He had become increasingly isolated uh, over time uh, imperious, if you will. But along the way, he was losing some of his old, staunch friends and allies. Very few could have talked to him as directly as, say, Alam or Dr. Ekbal. And I think that uh, he seriously missed them and their counsel when he was confronted with this uprising. And that that uh, accounted in part for some of his vacillating and indecision and so forth. Uh, what was your, uh, I, I'm not sure that I understood, what was your role in the embassy? Was it related to the State Department or? Yes, I'm career diplomat of the Foreign Service and I was, I was two things. Uh, I was a, what they call the Deputy Chief of Mission or Minister Counselor, but also on several long periods of time I was in charge. 
I was the acting ambassador. Yes, sir. What other countries, especially in that region, did you serve in? Turkey. And also, when, when exactly, what month, what year did you end your service in Iraq? I served in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, from 1955 to 57. Uh, I left Iran in April of 1978. Contacts with the, with the court. I uh, <laughs> I think Kim made some money, but he uh, fortune no, no, not at all. I mean, I know I know where he lived. I've seen I've been to his house. I knew his wife. Um, no, he did not make a big fortune. Hey, he probably made some. Almost anybody was connected with Iran in those days made money. He probably made a little bit more. I didn't. <laughs> um, Dr. Milani, you, you mentioned in our exchange uh, before I came down here <clears throat> that you were uh, uh, interested in the question of nuclear power. And this was coming up uh, during the time that I was there, and I was, I was involved. Uh, the Shah, in broad general terms, the Shah said to us, and I think rather presently, that, you know, one of these days we're going to run out of oil. may not be tomorrow or the next day, but one of these days we're going to run out of oil. And we should be prepared to deal with that issue before it happens. And uh, the nuclear power promised to be a solution to this, or at least a partial solution. So we began um, a series of discussions and negotiations, if you will, about whether we would provide or the American companies would be will, uh, able to sell Iran nuclear power, power plants. Uh, and shortly before I left, and I think this was a state that continued on until the Shah left, we had come quite close to reaching an agreement whereby um, <clears throat> The United States would take Iran's spent fuel and reprocess it so that the question of Iran having uh, material which could be converted into atomic bomb material was laid to rest. But we hadn't reached that point, but we were working on it. And uh, actually, this is a question that has again been reintroduced, as you doubtless know, uh, by the Russians and others as maybe a way out of this. Whether Iran is really hell-bent on acquiring a nuclear bomb, I haven't the faintest idea. But the point that you make is a very, I mean, historically important point because uh, it indicates that the U.S. was concerned that Iran does not have the full fuel cycle and part of uh, the agreement. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But not so much concerned that we're going to build a bomb just concerned that there's some material rattling around somewhere and we want to keep it, keep it under control. So why wasn't that the case for Israel? Hmm? I mean, if, why wasn't that the case for 
for Israel. Is it Israel? Is it okay to have a bomb for United States? Don't ask me to defend that. No. No. That in one hand, all of a sudden, U.S. is such a benevolent power that worries about nuclear handling in the hand of Shah, but it's okay for Israel to have, you know, 200 bombs developed. I, I, I can't give you a really good argument about that. I really can't. Yes, sir. What was the structure of U.S. trade assistance with uh, Iran um, first in the 50s and then in the 70s in terms of the assistance we were giving to uh, industries, farmers? Well, it, it basically it took the form of loans or grants to the Iranian budget, to the government. And then it was distributed to various departments and causes or whatever projects. Um, now, we were pretty nosy about things in those days uh, and got into sort of the details with the Iranians on, you know, what are you really going to spend this for and uh, how and who's in charge and who's going to watch it and who's going to account for it and sort of the bureaucracy at its best or worst. Um, that, was, that was the structure at the time. But then, as I said, uh, as the relationship evolved and Iran became self-sufficient in those terms, why that was no longer a question or an issue. I'm sorry? Well, did, did the U.S. have a vision for Iran economically outside of it being an oil exporting nation? Like did oh, yes. It was, a, it was a thriving market. We, we ex American business made all kinds of... I mean, this is why we had all these people running through Tehran day and night. They were busy selling and proposing and had grand projects of all kinds of uh, fervent imagination uh, to... <laughs> To get a get a hold of some of that oil revenue money. Was, was it, so was it more guys that were for hard industry steel that sort of thing, or agrarian kind of pistachio? Uh, oh no, no, not so no, not so much focused on the agricultural sector. No, not at all. In the early days, a lot of American money went to infrastructure projects, but that was in part through the loans and grants program, where we had sort of a major voice. But uh, later on, no. Uh, as I say, it was all, all kinds of things. I mean, manufacturing, uh, not very, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think there probably was some fertilizer plants and things like that that were associated with the uh, American business profit motive. Yes, sir. Well, uh, when the Carter administration came into office, there was a <clears throat> an increased emphasis on the question of human rights. And there were a lot of people within the U.S. government, within the State Department, 
within the Congress that felt that um, we ought to be more vigorous in pushing human rights um, considerations in our foreign policy. And of course, when it came to Iran, that was one of the one of the countries where this was something that uh, was felt uh, important. Um, we, I'm trying to think about how, we uh, um, discussed this at considerable length, uh, not only amongst ourselves, but um, with some of our Iranian friends. And, uh, and actually with the Shah himself, in the sense that uh, we had heard that X number of people had been thrown into jail, and some individuals are identif were identified, came to our attention that Ali Abbas was somebody or something like that, that had been thrown in jail and tortured. Uh, we had a, uh, a respected, I forget the organization exactly, but it, he was um, a lawyer and uh, very low key. But he came out and he talked with the Minister of Court and others, and we worked out a understanding with the Iranian government that if we had a name, we could bring it to the Iranian government and they would look into it and tell us whether the person was actually in jail or not, or whether or what the charges were or what happened. Now, interestingly enough, I know on one occasion, one occasion uh, this lawyer went to see one of these people that had been incarcerated. He was indeed in jail, but the story was that he had been horribly tortured and he was in bad shape. And the lawyer went there. He was in jail, as I say, but he was he was all right. I mean, he, there was no signs of physical abuse or anything like that. Now, that's not to say it didn't happen. It did. It did. I know that. Well, I, you know, I don't know the present, the current environment, and I don't know the personalities involved or anything like that. Just in broad general terms, I cannot believe that we couldn't reach some understanding and modus vivendi with the Iranian government, either in its present form or whatever form it takes in the future. But uh, it would be a, it's going to be a very difficult, long, arduous discussion and negotiation. It's not going to happen overnight, that's for sure. And even though you have a moderate um, prime minister or president, you still have the supreme commander. It's a theocracy, and that doesn't look like it's going to disappear anytime soon. Well, um, 
I wouldn't have described our relationship when I was there as the wolf and the sheep by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, uh, if there was some behavior attitude that uh, was presented to the Iranians, it would became clear quite soon that this was unacceptable. Uh, and uh, we had, <laughs> one of my jobs was conducting some of these um, influential American politicians or other personalities to see the prime minister or the minister of war or and sometimes the Shah. And uh, to, in advance, warn them, you know, look, this is, this is a very touchy area, a very touchy territory that you really ought not to get into because all you're going to do is offend whoever you're talking to and it's not going to achieve anything. So, uh, wolf and sheep, I, no, <laughs> not at all. No. Now, the, the Shah and other members of the government were very sensitive to who we talked to and who we saw and that sort of thing. And that was, uh, say specifically, uh, one incident was one of our officers in uh, Shiraz uh, had developed quite a close relationship with some of the opposition uh, people in that area. And uh, one day, uh, the ambassador at the time um, was meeting with the Shah, and the Shah raised this question. He said, you know, why is, why is this young man talking to so-and-so? Um, so-and-so is just a, a, a radical opposition communist or something like, something along those lines. But what it demonstrated was that they were very sensitive to this, and we knew this, and so we had to conduct ourselves accordingly. Now, if we, as time went on, and as things began to come to a boil, as you quite correctly put it, uh, there was less and less um, pressure on us to watch our step, and we were farming out to uh, farming our officers out broader and broader, and trying to understand better what was going on, who the players were, what their goals were, and so on and so forth. Uh, but a, a, an arrangement, no, it was, if there was any arrangement, it was along the lines that I just described of being able to go to the government and say, what about X, Y, or Z? And they'd come up with an answer. Yes, sir. Uh, we were big, very big. Uh, if you took into account the um, military assistance group, the advisors to Jinmish, um, and a lot of other people wandering around, we probably were about 2,400.
Uh, Turkey was smaller. How much smaller, I don't off the the top of my head know, but it was smaller. We had one of the biggest missions in the world at at that time, in the world. Just like now in Iraq, where you have like... Well, no, nothing. Oh, Iraq is... (laughs) That's that's really out of the question. No, but it was big. It was big, and it was part of my problem, to keep track of all these people, be sure they were more or less singing singing the same tune uh, and uh, they, there were a lot of them had their own ideas about what they ought to be doing or something like that, and I'd have to pull them in every once in a while. And also, uh, we were certainly wanted to be well informed about what the morale and thinking and sentiment was in the military, and we would ask our military advisors to give us some feedback. How is morale? Who's, how are you know who who are the bosses and that sort of thing, and uh, we didn't get much out of them. They, they said, you know, we're not here to report to you people about this sort of thing. I mean, we're here to just tell them how to fly a plane or how to maintain a truck or something like that. That's our job. Oh, we in Tabriz, uh, um, Mashhad, Shiraz, and Haramshar. I think that's it. Oh, Isfahan. My goodness, how can I forget Isfahan? Beautiful Isfahan. Sorry? Shiraz, yeah. Sorry, you... No, no, no. The, the, the 99.9% of the people there were to simply help train the Iranians, take in, maintain, operate all of the equipment they were buying from the United States. And incidentally, they, the Iranian Air Force was became first-class Air Force. I mean, they, you know, we have the Blue Angels flying around here. Iran had a Blue Angel team, and it was impressive, I'll tell you. Was there any diplomatic reason why there was a foreign Sorry? Was there a diplomatic reason why there wasn't a foreign internal defense mission there, um, like training the actual military? Um, you know, you know. Well, uh, it was sort of a program. I, I'm, it wasn't a Green Beret type of thing, but our... our uh, Advisors to the uh, gendarmerie had sort of that role, in, but more along you know organizational terms and training and discipline and that sort of thing. One more, no more. Yes, sir. Give us an idea of, you know, in terms of the country, the culture, the people, uh, you know, what your impressions were. Well, one memorable trip I took, which is around the two great deserts, Dasht Elut and Dasht Kavir. <clears throat> this is a long time ago. <clears throat> 
And uh, at that time, it was a pretty backward country. The roads were almost non-existent in some parts uh, and washboard in most of the rest of the place. Um, I remember one night uh, we were late on the road and we decided, well, we couldn't make where the next stop we had planned to make. We, we weren't going to make it. So we saw there was a little village off the side of the road and across the stream. Let's go there. So we went there and it was really a little collection of mud huts and whatnot. With the center part was uh, livestock where they kept their sheep and goats and things like that. And uh, the head of the community or the, or the village um, welcomed us in typical Persian family, come on in and we've got some place for you to stay. And I think there was a sort of a police station or something like that. It was just a little room, narrow room with some uh, wooden planks as cots and covered with very thin mattress and he ushered us into this place and he said you can stay here and he pounded on the mattress and he said look it's beautifully arranged and a cloud of dust rose from this thing anyhow we settled down and uh, oh about half an hour after we'd settled down gone to or lay down we heard the door creaking open and we thought oh god what are we gonna what have we gotten ourselves into and then there was a hiss of a lantern coming into the end of the space and murmurings of voice in the background. And then slowly the light receded and the door closed. And then this happened again. And what it was, was that uh, the head man, I don't know whether he was getting an entrance fee or not, but he was showing off these Ferengis <laughs> who had come to visit. and. The Iranians hadn't seen people like us before, so so we had a, a big joke about that, a big laugh. And then when we went down around Bam, um, the old Bam was built on this hill, and it was totally deserted. It was just mud. It was the whole city, if you're a town, whatever you want to call it, was was uh, mud. And that was a fascinating uh, sight to see. But in general. Everywhere we went, why it was it was hospitality, kindness, interest, uh, and which was a very warm thing to find. And welcome. Well, every indication is that that is still there. I beg your pardon. That's that's the reports I get. Well, thank you, and I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>